So I've actually been looking forward to this passage this morning. Generally, I try to work anywhere from four weeks to maybe 12 weeks ahead. And so I've been looking forward to this one, primarily because we're going to be looking at discipleship today. Today, actually, and next week. There are three times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus predicts his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. The first one came immediately after Peter's confession. If you remember when, when Jesus asked, who do they say that I am? And they kind of answered uh, the different responses people gave. And then he asked Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. And that was our first climax in the book. And immediately after that, Jesus describes his death, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection. The second time he does that is found in our passage today. And then the third time is found in our passage for next week. And so all three of these are kind of clustered together in a section of Mark's Gospel. And what I find fascinating about this is the context that surrounds these three times that he portrays his betrayal, death, and his resurrection. All three of them are found in in this section of Mark where it's surrounded by a discussion on what it means to be disciples. I find that fascinating because it ties the two together. And we'll see kind of how that works today. Two of these um, are immediately followed by discussions by the disciples on who's the greatest disciple in the kingdom. So what we have with these three passages is, again, they're surrounded by discussions about discipleship. And immediately after two of them, two times when Jesus talks about his death, the disciples go off on this totally other tangent of sorts to brag about which one of them is going to be the greatest disciple. And so you have this this somber discussion of, look, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to rise from the dead, and the disciples just kind of go on and start bragging about, well, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So we're going to look at that um, today. It's sort of two parts, if you will. Um, Both of the, uh, this week and next week, we're going to look at what it means to be great disciples, what it means to be great disciples. Let's look at the first four or five verses of Mark chapter 9, where Jesus actually predicts his death, or his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. Chapter 9 of Mark, starting in verse verses 30 through 31, we read this. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So again, this is the second time that Jesus does this. He did the first one in chapter 8, verse 31, after Peter's confession. And in that instance, Peter immediately rebukes Jesus for making such a claim. You remember that Jesus then rebuked Peter, basically saying, well, Peter, you have man's interests in mind, not God's interests. So in the very the first instance, when Jesus predicted his betrayal and his death and resurrection, Peter rebukes him because he didn't understand or didn't really comprehend it. This time, the disciples' response reveals another inability to accept what's going on. Look at verse 32 of chapter 9. Immediately after Jesus does this, they say, or the text tells us, and they did not understand and they were afraid to ask him about it. The word translated understand there has two primary meanings in the New Testament. The first one is a refusal to simply think about something or give attention to it. 
doesn't mean there's an inability to understand it, but rather they just refuse to think about it. The second way this word is used is it literally means to lack the capacity or an ability to understand something. The second meaning is likely what's intended here. In other words, when it says that they did not understand, what it means is that they were not able to understand or comprehend what Jesus had just just described to them. Remember, they were coming from the perspective of waiting for the Messiah to come, to conquer Rome and to stand up the Davidic kingdom. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were waiting for. And so they've seen Jesus do all these amazing things. Can you imagine what that must have been like, traveling around with Jesus and seeing him heal, seeing him perform miracles, casting out demons, feeding not just 5,000, but probably likely fifteen to 20,000 people with a few fish and bread. And then the guy starts talking about, well, yeah, but I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be tortured at the hands of some wicked people, and then I'm going to be put on a cross to die. But I'll rise from the dead. That's something that just was not something that they had considered. If we look at Luke, you don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 9, verse 45, actually says that the truth of what Jesus was saying was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. I believe that the reason for that was likely because... um, As disciples, as the twelve, or actually what became the eleven, their job was to now carry the message of the cross and the resurrection, the gospel itself, to the rest of the world. And so in many respects, their ability to fully comprehend or perceive it was hidden from them until they would be able to fully see the picture. In other words, to see the resurrection. And we see that in the disciples. We see that after the resurrection, things changed radically and drastically for them. The only thing that really they seemed to understand enough about was enough to grieve them. Matthew actually records that they only understood enough to grieve. In other words, they knew what Jesus was saying um, was troublesome. They just didn't understand the degree and the depth to it, but it was enough to concern them. Now their grief was probably because they were expecting him to set up his Davidic kingdom again. They were looking for relief from Rome. Now, the fact that they failed to grasp the significance of what Jesus was teaching them ultimately is found in the discussion that followed. Look at verses 33 through 34. As you might expect, Jesus' teaching led to a discussion among the disciples. You would expect that they would talk about it, right? So what do you suppose they would talk about? Well, Jesus wanted to know, so look at verse 33. Jesus says in verse 33, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. So... What were you discussing on the way? He's curious. Now, Jesus knew, I think, at this point. But he asks them. Now, I think Jesus is being kind here by using the word discussion because the other Gospels tell us that it was actually an argument. They weren't just having a nice, friendly discussion. They were arguing, debating with one another. We know how that goes. Have you ever heard your kids do that? They don't always just discuss, do they? So Jesus, I think, is being kind here. What, what, are you, what are you discussing? Verse 34 says, They kept silent, probably with good reason, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Now, it must have been a fairly spirited debate, argument, because we'll see at the end of our discussion today, in, in verse 50, Jesus calls them to have peace with one another. Because their discussion that they were having, their argument was not leading to peace, but rather probably some tensions. You can imagine that. I'm going to be the greatest disciple. No, 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 you're not. Come on, you. 
I'm much more intelligent than you, or I'm much more committed to Jesus than you. I love Jesus more than you. I'm going to be the greatest disciple. No, 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 you're not going to be the greatest disciple. It's going to be me. Well, that doesn't have a tendency to endear us to one another, does it? And so Jesus has to ultimately call them to peace. So what we have here is Jesus, in the second time, telling them what's going to happen to them. They immediately turn the focus on themselves and begin to debate which one of them will maybe have the greatest influence in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to set up, or which one of them might be given the best position. In fact, you might remember that there's another instance, and it'll be next week, when James and John, the brothers, go to Jesus and say, can we basically have the best place in your kingdom? Put us right next to you on the throne. We want the biggest places, the highest places of authority in your kingdom, because we deserve it. And that's likely what was happening here with the disciples. So, what, what do, would we expect Jesus to do with this? Well, Jesus turns this now into an opportunity to teach the disciples about what it means to truly be a great disciple in his kingdom. And there's going to be five principles that I pull out of this text for us today that I believe Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. The first one is that a disciple must be a servant of all. Look at verses, or let's look at uh, verse 35 to start with here. It says, sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. So they're debating which one of them is going to be the greatest. Jesus calls them out and says, look, you want to be great? Then you need to be last. You need to be a servant. Jesus' words, he remind me of something from that great Pixar classic, Cars. Do you remember um, Doc, the character Doc, the old racing car? And he's arguing with this young, young car, McQueen, who's arrogant and proud. And he's trying to explain to him how to drive on a dirt track. And Doc basically says, if you want to go right, you have to turn what? Left. Left. And McQueen's like, yeah, right. That doesn't make any sense. Well, he learns that Doc is right. So Jesus does something very similar here. In other words, it's the opposite of what you think. You think you have to be great and pursue greatness, but I'm telling you that instead, if you want to be great, you have to pursue servanthood. It's the opposite of what you think, in the same way that McQueen had to learn that the opposite was true when it came to driving on a dirt track. If you want to be first great in God's kingdom. You don't strive to be first, but rather you strive to be a servant and you strive to be last. You notice this was the example Jesus set for himself. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Just uh, one chapter over. Take a look at um, verse 42. We'll actually start there. We'll see this next week as well, but I'm going to just reference it today. Calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The song that we opened with today, Grace on Top of Grace, mentions Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. He became a servant of all. That's why he came. He didn't come to be served, but rather to serve. Um, Luke chapter 22, verse 27 says this, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? He then says, Is it not the one who reclines at the table? In other words, he's saying, Isn't this what the world thinks? 
that the most important people are the ones being served. They're sitting at the table, they're being served. They're the ones reclining at the table. But he says, no, I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus set the example. I don't think we can overlook the fact here in chapter 9 again of Mark that Jesus says we have to become a servant to all, not to some. How many of you would agree that it's very easy to serve some people and not so easy to serve others? Yeah, I see a hand raised. Jesus says you must become a servant to all. Look at verse 36 and 37. Jesus uses a child to illustrate this. He says, Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. It's easy to serve those we consider important or significant, but not always so easy to those that we consider less important or less significant, especially if we don't like them or if they're our enemies. However, a disciple of Jesus will serve them both the same, and that's the point of Jesus' illustration. Why does he use a little child in this case? The child, in this case, represents those who are most vulnerable and dependent in culture and society. They're often the ones who are less inclined, or they're the ones that are often less inclined to be served. You remember there's a situation with the disciples in Luke or in Mark chapter 10, we'll see it next week, where Jesus' disciples rebuke the parents for bringing their children to Jesus. What they're basically saying is, Jesus doesn't have time for the children, he's here for the adults, and Jesus rebukes them for it. It's it's an illustration that Jesus uses to teach the disciples that they have to learn to serve the most vulnerable, those those that are deemed less worthy. Oftentimes it's interesting how we will speak a good game on the importance of children, but don't always necessarily treat them that way. Parents come first oftentimes. Now, that's not always the case. But sometimes it is. So the first thing we learn from this is to be a great disciple means that you learn to become a servant of all. I think about moms this this Sunday morning here. I think about my own mom. And that was one of the things that we saw in my mom growing up. In fact, even after I got into college and after college when I would visit... um, Mom would know I was coming into town, and she would always call or, or um, send an email and say, Hey, you're coming into town. What can I get for you? She knew I loved grape juice, and so she would always make sure she went and she bought that. But she always wanted to know, What can I get you so that it's here when you get here? That was her heart. She always wanted to be a servant. When we grew up... Um, she was a phone operator back in the days when you would have to literally pull out the wires. You kids don't know what that's like, but you'd have to make a call to somebody, and there was somebody physically that would have to take and move wires around for you to complete calls. And that's what my mom did before she married my dad and then in that first year of marriage and that. And um, so she had started off on a career of sorts. But when she had kids, she decided she wanted to stay home and be home for us. And so when she did work, she took jobs in the evening or on the weekends. And um, part of it was because her heart was, I want to be home when my kids come home. She thought that was important to her. She taught us kids growing up what it was like to serve because she would serve us on a regular basis. And likewise, she taught us to then serve within the family. We were taught to cook at a very young age, to prepare meals, to, to do our chores around the house. Even to this day, I think my, my own wife and my kids would agree that Grandma loves to serve. She loves to, when we go home, she wants to take care of us. You know, she still wants to go and do all the grocery shopping before we ever get there. And we keep saying, no, we'll come and do the grocery shopping. When I get there and we 
when we go there, we oftentimes have to shop multiple times because it's, you know, a smaller house and a refrigerator and stuff, and so we'll go and get the things as we need them. And my mom will always say, well, I want to go along. And she will whip out her credit card and won't let me pay for the groceries that we're eating because she wants to serve. That's an example of a great disciple. Let's look at the second principle that we learn here in verses 38 through 41. And that's this. A disciple must not possess a spirit of exclusivism. It's a strange word, but a disciple must not possess a spirit of exclusivism. Let's look at what happens here. John approaches Jesus out of concern from what he sees some outsiders doing, meaning those who are not a part of the twelve. Verse 38 says this. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. These individuals were doing ministry in the name of Jesus. They weren't a part of Jesus' group. They weren't a part of the twelve, but they were out doing ministry in the name of Jesus, and they were casting out demons. John was concerned about that. So he said, we and the other disciples, we went up to them and told them to stop. To stop doing what they were doing because they're not a part of our group. The issue wasn't that they were doing wrong. The issue was that they weren't a part of the group. Maybe they weren't quite doing it right. But John says, they're not, they're not following us. Jesus, however, didn't have a problem with these folks doing this. And he told John not to interfere with what they were doing. Look at verses 39 through 41. Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So they were performing miracles under the authority of Christ, meaning in Jesus' name. And because of that, he said, they won't ever speak evil of me. He says that they were um, not against what the apostles were doing. He says, ultimately, they're for us then as a result of that. And he says, because they were sympathetic to the mission of the twelve, the gospel, they ultimately would be rewarded for it. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is, John, they don't need to be a part of this club. They're out there doing ministry in my name. John's problem was that they're not a part of the club. Why is that important? I'll give you an example. Um, you know that we homeschool our kids. There was a time where I was um, pretty severely opposed to homeschooling. And most of it's because my first exposure to homeschooling families. It came as a part of the church that I was involved with, where my, my, uh, the guy that I call my mentor, Pastor Krenz, was pastoring. It was back in the day where homeschooling was borderline illegal in some, actually illegal in some states, but borderline in other states. And I began to see this pattern develop in our church where some families who had begun to homeschool their kids began to separate themselves from the rest of the church family. And I knew some of these families. And as I began to talk to some of these families, I heard things like, well, you people don't homeschool your kids and you're sinning. Or... Well, we don't want our kids around those kids because of their influence. It even went so far as to say, our kids don't need peers. What they need are their parents. And so this movement began to grow in the church, where there ended up being, I think, seven or eight families. It was a church of about 600, 700 people 
But back then, that was a big group of homeschooling families because, again, it was borderline illegal in, in Wisconsin at the time. And they began to hold their own services outside of the church. They would still come Sunday mornings, but they would only sit with themselves and not intermingle with the rest. And it became very judgmental of the families in the church who were not homeschooling their kids. And that put a bad taste in my mouth because it wasn't right. If you weren't a part of their club, then you were abusing your kids. You weren't quite the Christian you should have been. It was very arrogant and very proud. Now, I'm not saying all homeschooling families were that way. It's just that in this particular church, we had a problem. And so I was opposed to homeschooling. Now, you know that that's obviously changed. Amy and I are the homeschool our kids, and you'll notice that we allow our kids to play with kids who aren't homeschooled. Go to public school, private school. Why? Because we don't have a mindset of exclusivism. We have a real problem with that sometimes in the church, where when others don't do things the way we do them, we question their spirituality. We, we, we question their commitment. I want to make a statement here that's a little bit bold, but there's no single individual group or church denomination that has a monopoly on Christianity. Now, there are denominations that have gone off the wagon. There are denominations that are false denominations. There are churches that preach false things. That's not what we're addressing here. Jesus, if he were here today, would likely say, it isn't about the denomination or the group, it's about their commitment to Christ. That's the bottom line. These individuals that John was looking at were ministering in Jesus' name. Jesus didn't have a problem with how they were doing what they were doing. But John did, and some of the other disciples did, because it wasn't quite done as a part of their group. And so true disciplehood of, uh, of Jesus means that we have to be careful of thinking that we're in this exclusive club sometimes. And that's, I think, kind of hard. You guys know me. I'm fairly bold and fairly opinionated. Maybe fairly is a light word to use. Um, I have disagreements with the way certain things are done. You hear me oftentimes mention the, the struggle that I have with what we see happening in many churches today. And I have to find myself constantly going, okay, be very careful. Make it a, a true biblical issue. Is what they're doing unbiblical? Can I go to the scriptures and, and say, you know what? Yes, this is something that is contrary to Christ. Just because they may do it differently than I might do it. Or because maybe they aren't quite in our club, so to speak. And I'll be real frank, that's a challenge for me sometimes. Because I have opinions. And I am, you know, it's, it's, it's easy when you're somebody up front all the time, supposed to be teaching. It's very difficult sometimes not to become arrogant and proud. And so I've got to struggle with that myself. And remember that a great disciple is somebody who doesn't believe that he's part of an exclusive club and everybody else that does it differently isn't just as committed, doesn't love Christ just as much, isn't just as great of a servant. It's funny, there's a church down in, um, I think it's the Cincinnati area, I think it's called the Heavy Metal Church. And, uh, there are some things they do that um, kind of boggle my mind. <laughs> you know, I was a metalhead when I was in college. I don't listen to any form of heavy metal today, but there were some Christian groups that I really enjoyed listening to, and people would disagree maybe with the style of music and other things. Um, and so I'm not necessarily opposed to that style of music when the words and the lyrics and the lifestyles match Christ, but um, my point is that when I first started looking through some of their stuff, I thought, wow, man, this is just, I'm not so sure that this is good. But as I began to listen to some of the individuals and, and see where their heart was at, 
there's plenty of people that just, they're doing it because they absolutely love that color. They're all a bunch of motorcycle gang people, you know. Um, you know what? My mentor, Pastor Krenz, started his church by meeting a couple of guys at the Pea Patch Saloon. Okay? Now, some people go, whoa! Why did he do it? To be real frank, there was nowhere else to meet. Literally. Up in the woods. You know? We've got to be very careful because, as we learn from this passage here, great disciples are not exclusive. Make the issue ultimately about, you know what? Is what they're doing really wrong biblically? Can I really make an argument that way? Would Jesus condemn this? Or is it just that they're maybe doing things differently than me? Or maybe maybe they're not a grace brethren, or maybe they're not a Baptist, or you know, that's why, you know, I, I hate it when people, you know, refer I grew up I grew up in a Catholic church and Catholic theology is very different. Um, but I know some Catholics who love the Lord. I, my mom is one of them. And so I, I hate it when people sort of take Catholicism and put it there's a lot of bad theology in Catholicism, but it doesn't mean that there aren't some Catholics who are saved. And we have to be very careful. Make it about, okay, you may be Catholic and your theology may be different than mine, but let's talk about Jesus Christ. Let's make that the issue. Okay? We can talk about your bad theology, but let's not judge who you are on anything other than really that relationship to Jesus Christ and whether what you're doing lines up with him and with that. But again, it's hard for us sometimes because they don't do it like we do it. Let's make the real issues about whether it's a biblical issue or not. Let's look at the, um, the third principle we can learn here from verse 42. And that's this. A disciple must not cause other believers to sin. That just seems like an obvious one, doesn't it? We can probably skip this and move on, right? Well, we're not. We're going to talk about it. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. That is some pretty serious judgment by Christ. If you cause, he says, these little ones to stumble, which is a reference to sin, it would be better for you if we hung a heavy millstone around the millstones that are used for grinding, tie it around your neck and throw you into the ocean. What's he saying there? It's better for you to be dead. Now these little ones here, I think is better translated as these humble ones because... The NASB, if you notice in your Bible, may have a little note that another way to translate that is literally humble ones. He doesn't say these little ones. He says these humble ones. In Matthew chapter 18, the emphasis is on humility and humbleness. That's the parallel passage to this. In, in Matthew, he attaches that phrase, these humble ones, to the children, which is why we often see it translated as little ones. But Mark here, you notice there's really no children at this point in the text. These... The Greek word these refers to the group right above it. Well, who are the these right above it? It's the ones out ministering on behalf of Jesus. They weren't kids. So I think it's better for us to understand this as not so much causing children to stumble, but those who are humble, those who are maybe um, not quite as mature in their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the real challenge. Now, that applies to children, which is why Matthew applies it to children. What Mark does is Mark applies it to the whole group doesn't just limit it to children. And so what we find here is that a great disciple is somebody who is very, very careful not to cause those who are weaker in the faith or less mature in the faith to sin. Does that sound like anything else we've ever studied? Remember Paul's discussion of Christian liberty? On how Paul says, I won't do something if it causes somebody else to stumble, even though it's perfectly fine for me to do it. I won't do it if it causes them to stumble or might lead them into sin. 
That's a sign of a great disciple. Somebody who is willing to give up some of their own Christian liberties because they know it may cause somebody else to stumble or to fall. I got challenged by that when I was in college. I was uh, involved with Steve in, in Campus Crusade for Christ, and I was an MC where so I would introduce the meetings and kind of proceed the meetings along. I, I played in the band that we had. Um, I was a leader. Well, by my senior year, I wasn't I had kind of copped an attitude, kind of gotten a little sour on some things. And one of the Campus Crusade directors had seen that in me, and so he pulled me aside. I still remember the room we met in, this, this little round table in one of the, one of the dormitories, and uh, basically called me out on some of my behavior and my attitude and said, you're a, you're a leader. There are people here, if they see you behave this way, they think this is okay, and it's not okay. And at that time, I just kind of looked at him, folded my arms, and kind of went, what's your problem, dude? Because of my attitude. You know, but he was right. And it finally impacted me. I thought, you know, I, I can't do that. I can't behave that way. I've got to be careful in the way that I behave and the things that I do. Even if it's not necessarily sin, if it causes somebody to sin, that's a bad thing. And so, as he's talking to these disciples here, he's basically them, challenging them, don't lead others into sin and the judgment for it Jesus hates that Jesus absolutely hates it it's not a small sin folks it's a huge sin because of the way Jesus describes it here it'd be better to tie a stone around your neck and throw you in the ocean if you cause a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble think about that as parents think about moms today Um, there are plenty of things that mom you're permitted to do Maybe it's well within your rights as a Christian. Maybe it's not necessarily sin, but when you live your life in a way that thinks, you know what, I'm going to maybe live in a way that absolutely tries to ensure that my kids don't be led into temptation. I think of one great example with my own parents. My parents did not drink. Mom, as we got older, we were in college, would have like a Rhine wine, but they didn't drink. They could have. I mean, they went out and they were part of the Arthur Murray Dance Studio. They would go out and dance all the time and compete. And they would go out and there was always alcohol available. You go out for dinner. And And my parents didn't do that. I grew up where by the time I was a senior, most of my friends were all going out and getting drunk. I would go to the parties and me and another friend wouldn't drink anything. And instead, we would drive all the drunk people home. Literally, I would get in their car, drive them home to their house... And my buddy would follow me in his car so that I would have a way back to the party to pick up the next person. Now, I didn't have, I mean, I would have, I would have drunk probably like the rep, but I grew up in a home where that wasn't even introduced to me. Now, counter to that, most of my friends that I was driving home when they were drunk had parents who drank all the time. My next door neighbor was a drunk, an absolute drunk. My best friend Rick, his parents would supply the beer. I would go over to his house and get ready for our big invitational swim meets and whatnot, and his mom would make us dinner, which was usually a slab of steak, about 16 ounces and nothing else, just a steak on a plate. And they would bring in a six-pack a six-pack of beer for my best friend Rick. We were 16 and 17. His mom would put a six-pack of beer on the table, and Rick would polish that off by the time we were done eating. 
By the time I was a senior in high school, he was doing coke and any number of other drugs. His life had been destroyed because of the behavior of his parents. Now, was it okay for his parents to drink? Well, certainly. Should they have because of where it led? My parents took a different route. They chose not to do those things. A great disciple is very careful about leading others into sin. And sometimes that means we give up certain liberties and protections. We make ourselves last. We give up certain things because they're just not important to us. Let's look at the fourth principle. Found in verses 43 through 49. And this is related to what I just shared. But a disciple must strive to avoid sin him or herself. In other words, it's not just that you try to avoid things that might cause others to stumble, but avoid things that cause yourself to stumble. Look at what he says here in... um, Let me flip back real quick. Verses 43 through 49. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands and go into hell into the unquenchable fire. We have a verse there that might be in brackets, verse 44, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That's probably a gloss or an addition. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet and be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. I was reminded of a bumper sticker when I saw this and I've told you this before. I absolutely hate seeing it. You pull up behind somebody in their car and it's a Christian. They got the fish on the, you know, the fish on their, their bumper sticker. Maybe they've got a bumper sticker about how much they love Jesus, but then you also see one next to it that says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Which to me, I mean, it's, theologically it's true. It sounds to me like an excuse. I've shown you a couple of videos um, a couple of weeks ago. There were two sets of videos I showed, basically asking the question, who do you say that I am? And we saw these responses. I deliberately left one of the videos out that it was a great video aside for one thing. And I left it out. It was this young lady who quite clearly professed to be a Christian because she said, I'm a Christian. But this is what she said. For me, I'm a Christian. Jesus is my Savior, which means I'm forgiven. I can do whatever the blank I want and not worry because he's cool with that. Now, does that sound like what Jesus wants of us? He's my Savior. I'm a Christian. And that means I'm forgiven. I can do whatever the blank I want and not worry about it because he's cool with it. In other words, I got my free ticket. We're all good. It's not the way that a disciple thinks. And so as these disciples are debating, all puffed up with pride, I'm the best disciple, and oh, I'm the best disciple, and you can imagine Peter's probably in there. He probably said, no, no, it's me, guys. I'm the most, I love Jesus the most. I'm really committed to him. But what happened with Jesus just basically a week later almost? A week and a half? I didn't know him. I didn't know him. I didn't, I, and he runs away. Denies Christ. This attitude is diametrically opposed to how a disciple is supposed to think. We went through a book of Ephesians not too long ago. 
which lays out in the first chapter and a half what Christ has done for us and the fact that we are now to walk in those things. And Paul starts the practical application of his book in Ephesians 4.1 by saying, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. If you remember, after God lays out the long list, 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament, and he gathers all Israel before him after Moses has just laid out the law for him. And you can imagine the crowd is probably sitting there, their heads are spinning. How are we going to remember all this? You know, They don't have cell phones, they can't pull up you know, commandment number 642 on their phone, but it's all been laid out and they're probably overwhelmed and God says, now if you're thinking this is too hard for you, don't. I'm going to give you a little key here. Love me and just obey my commandments. Love me and just obey. That's what it means. And if you do that, you're going to be okay. Jesus, I've been looking over a future passage here where the scribe comes to Jesus and says, he's rather intrigued, you know, all the other scribes are slamming Jesus. And there's this one little bright spot where this one scribe off to the side hears Jesus and he's impressed with how Jesus is answering the questions of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's during his last week, it's when he's in Jerusalem. It's the last confrontation with the scribes aside from getting arrested. And they're just hammering him. They're trying to trick him theologically, they're trying to trick him by getting him in trouble with the Romans. But there's this one scribe off to the side that's listening. And he's impressed with what he hears. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, what are the two greatest commandments? And what does Jesus say? Love the Lord and love others, right? As a way to summarize all of it. And the scribe says, you're you're right, Jesus, which means the scribe understood that. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. Now, what was he missing? The only thing he was missing was accepting Christ as Savior. Now, we don't know where he ended up. But, Loving the Lord means that we obey Him, which means uh, you want to be a great disciple. Stop focusing so much on being a great disciple and instead focus on, Lord, I want to love you in a way that avoids sin. I want to take that seriously. I think we live in a church age today where the church has lost its mind because I don't think a lot of Christians even think on a daily basis. Have I done anything today that might offend Christ? We have become so tolerant of sin in the world that there's almost no difference when you walk into some churches. You see all the singing and the praising and all the stuff going on and it all looks nice. But then you look at some of that during the rest of the week and there's no difference than the unsafe people around them. Now, that may sound judgmental. That's just the reality, folks. And I find myself sometimes doing that. Isn't that the truth? We're told to be actively involved with confessing. In fact, 1 John tells us that if we say we don't have sin, we're lying and deceiving ourselves. And instead he says, you know what you ought to do is you ought to confess and allow the Lord to cleanse you and take care of that. So the fourth principle we see here is that a truly great disciple tries to avoid sin. Let's look at the fifth and final principle here. It starts with what we saw in verse 50, or 49, where it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. That's a sort of a form of judgment there, if you will. Um, but verse 50 says this, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now this is kind of an interesting one. In the ancient Near East, 
Um, salt was used as a preservative. It was used to cleanse things. It was used as flavoring. But unlike today's table salt, the salt of Jesus' day could actually lose its saltiness. Today, the salt that you put on your table is usually pure sodium chloride. Sometimes they mix, what, iodine in it or whatever it is. Um, but it's pure sodium chloride. That's what gives it its salty taste. You can let it sit on the countertop or in a salt shaker for years, and it's still going to be salty the next time you use it. The salt, however, in Jesus' day came primarily from the region around the Dead Sea, and it wasn't pure sodium chloride. It was mixed with a bunch of other minerals. And as that would sit around, the sodium chloride would start to bleach out of it. And what was left over were these other crusty minerals. And so as salt got old, what it ended up, you ended up, it really wasn't salt anymore. It was other chemicals, gypsum and other things. And so it literally had no flavor, but not only that, it had no value anymore because it couldn't be used to preserve things or to cleanse things. And so that's why Jesus is saying here, hey, if it becomes unsalty, it's no good anymore. It was something they would have understood. Salt was also used, however, in the making of these um, binding agreements between two different parties. When two parties would agree in a covenant relationship, they would eat salt together before witnesses, and that salt would then be used to secure or to bind the contract. We actually see that in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 13, King Abijah referred to the Davidic covenant as a covenant of salt. Isn't that interesting? The Davidic covenant, a covenant of salt. God's covenant with the priests also called, was also called a covenant of salt in the book of Numbers. Some of the sacrifices in Leviticus were performed using salt and called a salt of the covenant. Salt actually symbolized the preservation of covenants and the maintaining of peace with God. That's exactly how Jesus is using it here. Why does he tell the disciples here, have salt within yourselves? He's basically saying maintain the covenant relationship, the purity of that relationship between yourselves. There was something that bound these 12 disciples together here, and it was a relationship with Jesus Christ. And remember, this all started with these guys arguing and debating about which one was greatest. And if you're going to debate and argue with somebody that you're greater than they are, as you build yourself up, what do you do to them? You tear them down. Even if you don't deliberately say something negative about them, that's what's implied. No, I'm better than you are for A, B, and C. Now, oftentimes, we don't leave it sit there, do we? I'm better than you at A, B, and C, and besides, you really stink at C, D, and E, or whatever it is. And so we have a tendency to no longer have peace. And so Jesus is basically saying, have some salt in yourselves. Preserve the unity of this relationship that you have. He even goes on, he tells them, be at peace with one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Jesus Christ calls his disciples to be at peace with one another. You know why most churches split? I shouldn't say most churches split, but you know why when churches split, why they split? Usually because the people can't get along. Sometimes it's issues over theology, but that's not the biggest reason why churches split. It's generally because people start to get at each other's throats. It's usually over differences of opinions. I have no problem with the church splitting when it's purely over a theological issue, when the pastor or the teacher is teaching something 
and it's contrary to the scriptures, I think people ought to leave. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, Paul told Titus to reject the factious man, the one who leads to those types of divisions. So if you can't fix the issue, it's time to leave. But if it comes down to a matter of the carpet or just because the preaching style, meaning you know what he's teaching is maybe not your particular taste for the way that he presents it, if it's theologically sound, it's okay. If it's not theologically sound, it's not. But we're supposed to be at peace with one another. You know, my uh, parents were great at this. I'm still very close to my brothers and sisters. That was important to my mom and dad. My dad came from a very large family, eight brothers and sisters, and um, they were extremely close. We grew up having tons of cousins. In fact, oftentimes Christmas Day, Sunday, uh, or I mean, Christmas Day, the 25th of December, our house was where my dad's family met. Now you can imagine in a little three-bedroom ranch of 1,200 square feet, fitting 50, 60, 70 people all crammed in, couldn't go outside because you're talking, you know, 10 degrees outside. You all stayed inside. We would literally stand around eating and we're almost chest to chest at times. That was important to my family. To be around my dad's brothers and sisters and cousins and all that. But even within our own family, I remember a time where my dad realized that us kids were not getting along too well. We were bickering and fighting as siblings often do. And my dad decided he was, he, he was done with it. And so what he did was he banned us from playing with our friends. Because he knew something. they got to play. So if they can't play with their friends, they're going to play with each other. So that's exactly what he did. He said, all right, you come home from school. You're not playing with your friends. You're going to play with each other. And I believe that's probably one of the reasons why we get along. Now, once we started getting along, Dad finally let us play with our friends again. But what's interesting about that is I chose to go to the same college, or go to the college that I did, for one reason, my older sister was there. That's why I went. They had a great computer science program, but I could have gotten it anywhere. In fact, there were other schools that might have been better. I chose to go to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, because my sister was there. We bought our first car together. We shared it. We bought our second car together, and we shared it. I think a lot of that is because my mom and dad looked at us and said, You got your brothers and sisters. You're supposed to be at peace with one another. I've got friends and, and others who can barely stand their siblings. Can't get along. It shouldn't be that way. If there's anybody you really should get along with, it's part of your own family. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at these disciples here and he's saying, I just told you about my death. There's bigger issues here and you're sitting here and debating each other over which one of you is better than the next one? We've got to end that. And so he says, have salt in yourselves. Because if you lose your saltiness, and you can't get along, and you can't be at peace with one another, this world is doomed. If you as a church, as a family in Christ, cannot get along with other members of the body, the church is doomed. And so one of the principles on being a great disciple is to be somebody who is absolutely committed to peace with others. That's not always easy, is it? You have a difference of opinion with another believer? 
Maybe they did something to offend you. Jesus calls us to mend that relationship. So our part means that we strive to be salt and strive to be at peace. If they reject that, then that's them. But our goal is to strive to be at peace. I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes we just, whatever, we kind of move on. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. I think a mom and a dad have a great responsibility in that. My mom was always a peacemaker, but in a good way. She wasn't going to be walked on top of. She wasn't going to allow people to abuse her. But her heart was always to be a peacemaker of sorts. I, I learned from her working at the, at, the, um, at the pool in the lake how she would handle customers who would come in and be irate. And I think I've shared the story before about me going and flailing my arms at a customer, a swimmer on the beach and stuff, and how mom just pulled me into the office and said, you just can't do that. You know, and she explained to me, you know what? If you do the right thing and if you try to make peace, if you speak kindly and gently, oftentimes they'll respond in kind because they'll feel too embarrassed to keep continuing with that behavior. That was my mom's heart. It's amazing how our parents, moms and dads, play a, a tremendous role in trying to keep the peace like my dad did with us kids. How much more important is that as Christian parents when it comes to our kids? They see how we respond to other believers when they mistreat us or they're not always kind. And they'll pick that behavior up. So it challenges us as parents to live that way around our kids so that they might learn how important it is to maintain peace. Now that doesn't mean that it's always possible to maintain peace because sometimes people will refuse. You know, these, the homeschool families that I had shared with you from my growing up, there was no talking to them. They were so convinced that those who didn't homeschool their kids were wrong. Okay, The rest of us do the best we can to love them anyway. Maintain the peace with them. If it doesn't exist, at least we can say, I mean, I tried, I did everything I could because a disciple of Jesus will try to do that.